Uh, this is once again an indie web podcast uh, recorded uh, May 7th, 2018. Uh, this is episode four, where we're planning on talking about web mentions, privacy, and stuff. My name is David Shansky, david.shansky.com, and I'm once again joined by Chris Aldrich, who so far for five episodes now has been my co-host. I'm glad you call me every week and let me be part of it. Well, just remember, you are the best co-host I've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> and that's saying a lot. It is. There's been absolutely no competition in that category. Okay. You know. Well, it also means I'm the worst as well. So I prefer to where think do, positively. Where do we go from there? Okay. So you're doing, you're playing the, what would, uh, what would Tontech do? I do that sometimes. Yes. I, okay. You know, you know what they say, learn from the best. Exactly. Exactly. And he's had a lot of experience at that. Yep. At least a hundred days of positive posts. Yeah. But there's also negativity. Well, I like to think to or use the philosophy that the the negative of something also gives you a, an image. The you know, so the the, ne- the negative of a photo adds some additional information you may not have had with the positive version of it, um, and probably even more so in science and statistics. But that's another story. Um, well, um, let's see. This uh, week, the topic of web mentions, which we discussed. Um, making a topic on this program previously uh, came to a head because of a lot of privacy discussions. So it seemed like the perfect time to talk about what a web mention is and why at the moment uh, it seems to be so controversial. Or not even controversial. I don't think web mention itself is controversial. I think the controversy is... Uh, something related more to privacy and ideas like the right to be forgotten. So let's not um, let's not conflate the two, because I think web mention in and of itself is a very smart and positive and you know phenomenal thing on the internet. No, I agree. I'm, I'm I don't think I should be necessarily conflating the two. I'm just saying that it's what web mention brings that has. Yeah become controversial not so much the web mention itself yes um so let's uh, well why don't we start there with what what is a web mention what does it do what is it what does it enable so uh, i'm going to explain this in the simplest possible terms Uh, you know the answer but uh let's for the sake of this discussion pretend you don't yeah I'll, i'll be i'll be the devil's advocate or pretend to not know what's going on and so uh, in this example, you're go- um, since people like to use um, fake names, you're going to be Alice, and I'm going to be Bob. Uh, this seems to be a long-standing computer tradition where Bob and Alice are characters in a uh, basically an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so basically, I have a website, and you have a website, and. You have written an interesting article about what topic are you writing your interesting article about? Oh, because I'm Alice, I'm, you know, I'm writing about information theory. Okay, so Alice is an information theorist? Mm-hmm. Indubitably. Okay. So Alice, the information theorist, has written her article, and I, as a reader, 
me, Bob the Reader, has um, basically decided to write something about what she has written and link to it. In its basic form, all I'm, I am basically writing a post on my site, linking to Alice's post, and then I am sending something called a web mention. It is basically a communication to Alice's site that says, here I've linked to you. And Alice's site's response is to come back and verify that my site is in fact linking to Alice's. That is the, the simple basic explanation of how the plumbing part of a web mention works. Uh, that part is not quite as interesting as what happens next. Uh, so there are a lot of other possibilities in how web mentions can work because once you have connected two things together, you can do a bunch of other things. So what most community members do is they attempt to use link in order to generate a rich comment, which is now displayed on the original post. So for example, Alice's site might reach out to Bob's site and find Bob's picture, um, a link to Bob's um, profile, should Bob have one, and other information that can be used to display this richer comment that says more than just, here's a link back to somebody who linked to me. So in some sense, it's the infrastructure that provides one website the ability to communicate well, with another well all all one website forth. all web one website is telling the other website is you've been linked to everything else is done by the site that is basically the target of that link so it's alice's site that decides to go out and do something with the information it's been given and it could do a lot of different things the most common one in the community is it parses the page and attempts to use that information in order to display something but that's not necessarily the only thing it can do. For example, uh, Bridgie, which it, um, uses web mentions as sort of an API, uses a web mention in order uh, as a trigger to publish something. So it is a very simple way to send a signal. So it's, re it's really the notification from yeah. one site to another. Yeah, and everything else that people love about web mentions is all about what the target site does once it's received the web mention. So it's typically easier to write the part that sends a web mention than it is necessarily to write the portion that receives it and does something useful with it. Well, receiving it is also easy. The sending and receiving part is relatively easy. It's the part with what you do with it that's harder. So let's say if I had, um, if I was writing a review of a product, I could write a review and with the proper markup, I could send a web mention to that product that exists on some website. Let's say it's Amazon and I could send a web mention and Amazon could receive it. And then Amazon potentially could, you know, show my review as a, you know, one, one to five stars with all the details that I wrote. Yeah. Um, and then that becomes a, you know, another example of something. Or, um, you know, another good example is I can say I can read your post and say I like it, 
and essentially create a bookmark link on my website that says I, I like this bookmark. It sends a ping to your site, your site sees it and receives it, and then you can display it as a, a heart or a star or you know, whatever UI that Which um I believe your site does fairly well. Yeah. So you incorporate well, th- this functionality right now. So you're yeah, already I think doing I'm, this. On my website I think I'm doing it in I, I want to say I face pile those at the moment or have been for a while. Every now and then I go back and forth, but I you know, have a little thing that says likes and you know pictures of folks' avatar uh for those who've sent me likes. Um and in some cases of the the markup tur- um turns it into an actual comment. So without without getting too deep into the weeds, web mentions in some sense are somewhat similar to the functionality of notifications on things like Twitter or Facebook that you've been mentioned somewhere else within that platform. Yeah, and but... then what that what that mention actually is, whether it's a comment or a like or a retweet or you know what have you, those can vary. Um, but it's web mentions are things that work not only within a, a vertical silo, but work across domains from one domain to another. Yeah, and once you choose to have some interpretation, you get the opportunity to do all sorts of interesting things. For example, uh, one of the things that uh, debuted with this podcast uh, was the listening markup. So one of the things I made sure was ready for this podcast when we started it is somebody can go and post that they're listening to this podcast and it will make it the image from their website appear a lo- under a heading that says that they're listening. Which is fun and useful, particularly in, you know, if you want to... If the whole world supported this, it would be very easy for a podcast site to collect data about everybody who had publicly said they listened to a podcast, let's say. But that brings it um, to our our big issue. So the issue that's been coming up lately is uh, due to a European regulation, the GDPR, which is General Data Protection Regulation, which comes into effect at the end of the month. And just to give the Cliff Notes version of it, because um, I've been forced to uh, talk about it both professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because um, I work for a European company. I don't talk about work very much publicly because it's work. But my company's obviously concerned because there are fines for not complying. So I've had to sit in a bunch of meetings talking about what this is. So uh, basically, as it applies to websites, the website has to have a posted privacy policy stating what it does with data that it receives. It has to give you the opportunity as a user of that site to get the data that the site has on you to ask that that data be removed and or, or corrected and to allow you to not necessarily share information that doesn't need to be shared. So this creates a problem for people who are concerned about it. Now, the concern is that 
even though most of the sites that are using web mentions are personal sites, that they would still be subject to this because they are keeping data about other people. And even on a non-privacy regulation issue, the biggest question is backfeed. So backfeed is defined as you pulling in information from another site. So you have your post on your site. You syndicate that post to another site. Somebody replies to your post on that site, and then it is fed back to your website and appears as a comment on your site, even though the interaction didn't actually happen there. So the example would be I create a post on my site, and that post is a copy of a site of a post that was also made on Twitter. Somebody replies to the tweet, and I pull that comment back as if it was a reply to the actual post, which effectively it is because one is a copy of the other. So the question has been raised is, did that person on Twitter consent to me having a copy of their reply simply by interacting with me in a public forum like Twitter? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm editorializing here because I'm the one who's saying public forum. Yeah. And I'm saying it that way because that's how I feel about it. I feel that if you put something publicly up on the internet and you share it with another person, then that other person is a part of the conversation. And again, has some opportunity there. But it is a legitimate question, what happens if somebody doesn't know this? So if somebody knows that you have a copy of their thing, then I'd say it's definitely fine. But is it fine if they don't know? So is everybody who's interacting with me have have to be made aware that I'm archiving the information of our conversation? Yeah. And particularly in a very public place like, you know, pu- publicly facing Twitter, which is the, you know, the commons of the world, so to speak. Or I guess here's here's the other question is, and uh, and to be clear, we're talking about generally personal data or personally identifiable data. So things like your name, your Twitter handle your location, your avatar, um, or your GPS coordinates even. So what happens in the case that, let's say I respond to something you post and syndicate to Twitter, and I reply on Twitter, and then three months, four months from now, I decide I don't like that comment, or I want to cancel my Twitter account altogether and I delete it all. Well, there's a lot of competing. It's I'm deleting it from Twitter, but what happens to the 500 other copies that may have potentially existed on the internet from other applications that interact with Twitter and, and have my data and take my data and use my data. Well, here's the thing. That's an application that may use it for some sort of commercial benefit. In this case, I was a party to that conversation. So I'm recording it as being a party to it. Now, I use the analogy, you've looked at what I've written on the subject of a telephone conversation. For example, um, I happen to live in the state of New York, uh, which is a one-party consent state. Now, and what is what is and what does that mean for those who don't know what a one-party consent state is? Uh, that's basically what I was going to explain. So, basically, 
it means that if I'm having a telephone conversation with somebody, I do not need to ensure that the other person gives consent for me to record. Now, there are only a few two-party consent states. Uh, for example, California, Connecticut, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Montana, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania. So those states say that in order for you to record a conversation, all parties in the conversation have to consent. Whereas in my state, only one of the two has to consent. And again, that particular recording, I can do whatever I want with it. So whenever you have a conversation on the phone, do you say this call may be recorded to the person on the other end? I don't. But if Although you... for, for the purposes of this conversation, yeah, go ahead and record it and release it to the world. Yes, um, but we agreed on that. So that's two-party consent. Well, and in a social setting, too, the fact that we're doing a podcast, essentially, I have to, even though I haven't explicitly said, I have essentially tacitly said, I'm okay with you recording this conversation. Um, well, well what, since we're what, recording it, we're, we're having the conversation for the purpose of recording it, one would assume you approved it for that reason. What what happens when I, you know, have said something accidentally and... Um, Four months from now, I'm applying for a new job, and I want you to remove it. Then what happens? Well, again, that goes back to if I'm a responsible individual, I'll remove it. Or at the very least, I will privatize it. Because my website is also my archive of all of my interactions. So I want to keep an archive of my interactions. Which means the respectful thing for me to do is to make it no longer public. If I think that it is worth keeping. If I don't think that there's some possibility that it's part of my personal archive, then I would just purge the entire thing. Now, there are different degrees of this. I could, If I'm keeping a copy of your photograph, I could purge that. It doesn't necessarily add context to mm -hmm. me wanting to keep the interaction. Well, I think, and I don't think we've mentioned it thus far, but it was um, uh, Sebastian Greger in... And I believe he lives. I believe he lives in Germany. Um, yeah. Um, so he. I will say he, that uh, since this is a European Union rule, a lot of the people who have been raising questions about it are people in the EU. And well, again, it's been, it's been all over the news as well. Yeah. So if over the last couple of months, it's become a the implementation and the coming online of the GDPR regulations has become a bigger and bigger thing. And it's been a brewing conversation, I think, that within the IndieWeb community blew up earlier this week when Sebastian made a an incredibly long, detailed, and well-thought-out post. Um, I, it, in my mind, I read it more as some very interesting UI and design challenges relating to data that's shared back and forth between people from a privacy standpoint. And then the second part of his piece was how all these things relate to the GDPR, particularly for people who are living and working or interacting with 
folks online within the EU, which is not necessarily the case for everyone. So as a person living in the United States, my my interest in this is generally very low because it's not a law that's going to impinge on me directly. So I, you know, I think I've noticed people who are more up in arms about the GDPR issue tend to be folks in the EU and even more so folks within Germany. Well, Germany, um, from what I gathered, takes a very hard line to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Well, they, I, I think uh, no, as a, opposed to other countries, which have also ratified this particular rule, but um, will not necessarily enforce it the same way. Yeah. And is it a, is it enforced within c- c- countries? Or I would imagine is enforced by the country. Well, um, the, the country the creates a, a data privacy commissioner. So somebody who's charged in that country in basically enforcing that regulation, and apparently in Germany, the way that they may be interpreting it is a much stricter interpretation than some other countries in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it goes the other way. So, for example, um, Kurt Williams, who's also a community member, who's at islandinthenet.com, actually responded to what I said by commenting, that until he understood the legal implications of it on his website, uh, he basically was going to block all traffic originating in the EU from visiting the site. Wow. <laughs> so uh, from now on, yeah, I'll, I'll quote, I thought I lived in the United States and was only subject to those laws, but apparently not. Uh, I, th- I think a, that's... that's a much bigger hard line than I would take. That's a yeah, a much more extreme case. Um, I you know so there's I've seen there's been a wonderful variety of responses and the uh, the comment section on Sebastian Greger's original post uh, this last week um, probably has most of that stuff aggregated there or a broad panoply of. Uh, responses um, and I've seen everything from I hadn't heard about Kurt's response yet or hadn't seen it um, but for someone in the US I think that's a, well, a his response more... was to my post which was a response to a lot of the thoughts that this brought up And um, but if you go to the original post you'll see a lot of commentary from different people mm-hmm well, I think a lot of it comes down to social norms of what people interacting, whether it's in person or online, can be. And I, I think there's been, a, because people who are practicing indie web tenants, in some sense, own their own websites, I think they take a higher level of personal responsibility and personal civility in terms of what they're posting and how they're replying to others than they would on sites like Facebook or Twitter, which I know conversations in some of those spheres can devolve rather rapidly and turn into ad hominem attacks. But I 
have really yet to see anything even vaguely impinging on that within kind of the broader indie web community. So I think a, a lot of the philosophy that I've seen many take, and I'll, I'll say even more so many within the United States in particular have taken, is that it's online interactions are much closer to person-to-person interactions in the real world um, where there's a much higher level of civility in terms of the conversation and the discourse that goes back and forth. Um, So we haven't, you know, most of us aren't dealing with issues like flame wars on Twitter or, you know, insane responses that can be seen in other parts of the public sphere. But the at the same time, too, because you own your own domain and you have your own website, you have the ability to more closely moderate the responses that appear there. So if someone is targeting you or harassing you and you're not actively moderating comments, uh, or at least moderating comments that will appear on your site, you have the option to go in and delete them out so that those pieces of comment don't, you know, aren't being provided a platform on your website. Uh, I think the, may have been about a year ago, I remember there's an educator by the name of Audrey Waters who uh, is part of the, or at least believes in the domain of one's own movement within the education sphere, which is, I view not very different from the indie web uh, general philosophy. But I think she was tired of not only maintaining comments on her site, but was very tired of the vitriol and targeting she was receiving on her own website. So she turned it off altogether and is using, in some sense, I think she's using Twitter or other social platforms to have engagement and conversation. Uh, But at the same time, too, there, she's given very little, if any, moderation tools for conducting those conversations. I would think she would have a little more luck doing it on her own site so that at least she can delete poor commentary out of existence. Well, but let I me think... ask you a question. Sure. Now, turning back to the, the question, do you feel that the people you interact with would be disappointed that you're bringing that interaction back to your site? The people I you have... interact with somewhere else? The the odd thing, too, is I have rarely, if ever yet, encountered folks who, and let's, we can use Facebook as an example so that we're talking about something a little more concrete. So I post something on my site, I syndicate a copy of it to Facebook, and then a conversation then ensues on that version that's on Facebook that I am then taking all those comments and replies and reactions and backfeeding them to my site. I think the majority of folks that I have interacted with that way to the, to a great extent have no idea that their comments or responses 
are being backfed to my own personal website. Yeah, I, I think feel, to how do you to, feel to, as somebody who's fairly open to, about what you're doing? To you to a great well, to a great extent, I think they don't know. Um, I think I've done a reasonable job for the folks who follow me closely have an idea that I might be doing this, but I think in general, if they did know, I think the majority of them probably would not care, or at least the, you know, friends and family that I'm close with occasionally, a lot of my Facebook profile is broadly open and public. So I will have occasionally people that I don't know directly will find a post and comment on it. Um, and lots of times in those cases, even though their response is backfed to me, and in some part maybe depending on what that comment is or how it fits into a piece of broader conversation, I may moderate it out of my comments on my site simply because I don't know them or don't know them well. Um but so, at the same time, you know, so I don't think I, any of my friends or family would say I'm impinging on their privacy, but at the same, by the same token too, they, I, I'm only having that commentary backfed to my site because they posted their response in public. If their response to me was a private response so that only I could see it and they, you know, reduced the visibility to friends or friends and family you know i wouldn't i wouldn't be getting that comment back to my site in a general sense anyway because its audience has been limited so i think in that sense services like bridgey are doing a reasonably decent job of take only backfeeding commentary that's in public and sending it back to me um so i i've yet to run into a place where somebody finds out that I'm backfeeding it to my site and they're, you know, shocked or, you know, in one or two cases, they've been really more odd of, hey, how do you do that? And can I do that too? Has really been, you know, the response more often than not in the few cases that it's existed. So what would you do if somebody didn't like it? Uh, if somebody didn't like it, I would be happy to go through my database and either automatically or manually remove their responses from public view. I probably would not for my own personal use. I would do kind of what you do. I take a, a more archivist uh, view of things and I would be more likely to remove it from public view, but I would still keep the data on the back end so that I would still have a record of that, personal conversation and again would you let's say remove unnecessary pieces for example let's say that you would you keep the text but not necessarily keep the metadata around it well i yeah depending on what it is and and does their portion of it fit into a thread of a bigger conversation that's occurring around my piece so if they I'm may thinking of things like their avatar photo yeah, if they made an interesting and salient comment and there was a thread of comments that followed that, I probably would 
be more likely to remove their photo their if there was a link to the you know i would remove their photo their name and a link to any other presence so i would essentially could essentially leave the comment as it stood and essentially anonymize it so that you know mystery person a made this comment that way the broader piece of the conversation stays intact and i you know there is a little bit of context collapse there that in that not knowing who the person is that made the comment you may not have an idea of who they are where they come from where they fit in from a social perspective or even socioeconomic perspective um which can in some conversations affect what's going on within the conversation you know obviously if if you're having a conversation at work and it's a work related thing you're going to have a very different personal response to it than if it's a conversation you're having in a more family setting so i think a lot of those context issues can be important ones but I think as it relates to most of the stuff that I'm either posting or putting out into the public sphere, most folks know and understand that it's a, at least a publicly visible conversation and, you know, act a, a little more accordingly rather than, you know, telling locker room jokes that may not sit well with some, some people. But uh, generally, I probably would tend to default to removing the minimal amount of data, but still trying to keep the the context of the conversation going. But um, interestingly enough, um, one of the reasons that people seem to be worried, um, I noticed it when I was looking at the GDPR discussion that took place in Dusseldorf over the weekend at the Indie Web Camp there. And uh, it was not recorded, but their notes appear in the wiki. Mm -hmm. And here seems to be where the biggest concern is. Strictly speaking, personal sites are not affected. But once you state you're a freelancer, or if there's any way to link you as a company or commercial thing, you would need to comply. And they note this is probably the majority of the current indie web. So there's where the issue is. Mm -hmm. So as well, far as I know, you're not a freelancer I, I would, you know, that's the tough part is it's, I, even though I post about or bookmark things that are of a kind of work-related or interest-related nature on my website, you know, it's part of who I am and how I exist, and it's very hard, at least the way I maintain my online presence to divorce the personal side of me from the work side of me, from the, maybe let's say the friend side versus the, you know, the, the broader public facing avatar. So those on my side, all of those different pieces of me are kind of rolled up into one single existence. So I, to some extent, I you know I can see where they're coming from in terms of talking about things that may have a commercial nature. 
And I even have one or two websites that are to some extent indie webified. And I think it was uh, Tontech raised it a month or more ago in one of the chat rooms and we created a wiki page for kind of an indie web for business to some extent. And I think he was interested in, you know, how to, how would one create a website for, in his case, I think it was a yoga business and kind of go that route. In which case then, yes, you've got a website that represents a commercial interest. And in that case, yes, by all means, Take things because you're a commercial interest, take things a step further and higher in terms of helping to guard people's personally identifiable information and handle it in a more solid way than one might if it were a personal website that tends to be more personal related conversation. Well, also, it seems to be so far it's theoretical because I haven't actually spoken to anybody who's objective. Well, and here's where I I'm saying that I don't, I'm not saying that that's an excuse. I'm saying right now I, I can't visualize what the objection would be on a privacy level because I haven't met anybody who has an objection. Well, so so I hear there's an interesting area that I've been following a lot lately. And I, I think even to bring it into context for people who are, uh, more American-centric or viewing this from uh, an American sociological perspective. The Facebook Cambridge Analytica data breach, you know, is, to, in, to my mind, this is exactly the type of thing that something like GDPR is meant to mitigate against. And so to a great extent... One is, I'm much more leery of large corporate interests that are siphoning up massive amounts of data about not just one or two people or groups of dozens or hundreds, but doing it at the scale of millions to hundred millions to even billions in Facebook's case. And the question then also becomes, as a larger corporation that's sucking in data at that scale, what what can you do with that data? And I think there are not a lot of folks who are, there are probably more within the indie web who, because of their technical backgrounds and technical natures, are at least aware of it. But what can you do with data that's held at that scale? And And not just what can you do that's potentially good at that scale, but what kind of harm can you do with data at that scale. And so to me, the broader ethical issues of what one does with that type of data becomes a bigger question and is a bigger issue. So if you can use these pieces of data so that you can you know, create an artificial intelligence that can determine information about people that they're not aware they're divulging on their behalf. So things like, you know, you there want are, that built into your website there, you know, so I, I'm not building that into my website. And as an individual person, I am not collecting or storing 
large enough, typically I'm not storing large enough amounts of data about people to be able to extrapolate or put that data into things that would extrapolate that kind of data. So, you know, one of the more common examples lately, there was a, a psychology paper two or three years ago that was was an academic enterprise that was taking data out of Facebook and then cross-referencing it, but they were able to, by solely scraping a person's likes and 50 or fewer likes, they could correctly identify whether you affiliated as a Republican or Democrat. They could identify you as a, you know, uh, more likely or not to be a homosexual or to have a non-binary, you know, affiliated identity. And so when you're able to do things like that, and typically you need massive amounts of data to be able to train a massive data set to train an AI to be able to, to differentiate these things. But then once you've done that, you can then target that application at an individual person and with very small amounts of data, extrapolate things about them that they either have not tacitly said or posted online, but given the data set you've got to use against them and leverage against them, you can know things about them that they have not divulged to maybe their significant other. So if you've got a, you know, a husband and a wife, properly trained AI instance could look at 50 likes on Facebook and, you know, you could potentially know more about, you know, a, a wife and a couple than the husband knew about her after 10, 10 years of marriage, let's say. Um, so it's that to me, it's that weaponization of that type of data at large scales that we need to be more cognizant and aware of. And th so that's where things like GDPR becomes a more valuable tool. Whereas I think what most of us are doing on the indie web side in terms of online personal communication, we're we're putting that those small amounts of data about ourselves out there, and as long as they're used in the historical context that most social interactions have typically had in the past, then then generally I'm fine with it, and I think most most people are fine with that issue. It's where people are going to start taking bigger notices when large corporations like Facebook or Twitter are, or Google or Amazon. And, I, you know, Amazon certainly is a large yeah. corporate interest that's taking data I freely give it and using it back to try and force me to, to buy more, you know, consume more and consume more of what they've got. Um, so here's the question I have to ask you. So you know what the general problem is. What's the solution? What should I do tomorrow in order to in order to basically address these concerns while not changing my own personal opinion, so respecting well, others? 
So the the tough part about this is, and there's a lot of, you know, there are folks who use words like techno panic. Um, but I, I would liken it to an analogy of, you know, in the early days of World War One, technology was created that allowed an innovation essentially known as the machine gun or Gatlin gun to exist. So within a war context, one was able to, you know, kill people, kill one's enemies at a much greater rate than had previously existed. And then in the last hundred years, we've perfected that to the nth degree such that, you know, a small nuclear weapon could decimate a city of 20 million people inside of 10 seconds. So we've, over time, war and social mores have adapted to these ideas and concepts. So the question is, what does what does this all look like 100 years from now when one can take the digital equivalent of a machine gun and what ends up happening with the data that's being used. So do we renormalize? Do we regulate against companies doing what Facebook has managed to do with the data of millions or billions of their own customers? And I think, to me, the some of the most valuable parts of Sebastian's post are taking a look at people's intent. What did they post? What did they mean to post? How would a Twitter user's data reasonably be expected to be used? You know, so in his case, I think he, and, you know, I even looked at today at Twitter's use of the their like functionality versus their previously non-existent bookmark functionality. And uh, even though there is it now, I think as of February, there's kind of a small amount of bookmark functionality built into at least the mobile side of Twitter. It's not well known. I don't know what the general use and uptake of the feature has been, but I personally use the like functionality on Twitter at least 50% of the time I use it as a bookmark rather than a like. So Sebastian brings this concept up in his post. You know, did somebody in liking the, you know, a short post on Twitter, does that necessarily equal the like of a much longer narrative? So even on his post, it was, you know, it's a 10, 20 minute read. And he posted a link to it on Twitter that's less than 280 characters. Does liking the thing on Twitter necessarily equal a like of that thing in its much longer form on his website? Not necessarily. Which is a legitimate comment. And it it may and that like on Twitter may not actually be a like. It might be a the the original intent may have been that somebody was trying to bookmark it. You know, I've have for a long time used the if this, then that, and they're, 
API set up so that when I like a post on Twitter, it will essentially bookmark that post for me on my pocket account or through another account with a feed reader so that I can come back and read the post. So half the things I click the heart icon on on Twitter are things that, oh, I I like this. This is interesting. Thanks for posting it. You know, and the other half are, oh, this is interesting. I want to come back and read this later, but I don't have the time right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to like it and know that this service in the background is going to save it for me to read at a later date and time. Um, and then, you know, somewhere in there, there's probably another 10% of posts where I'll click the like button to indicate, you know, when someone responds to me and I don't reply back, you know, I'll hit the heart to indicate to them, yes, I saw this post. I saw that you replied to me. Thank you. But you know, that's the, not specifically the, a the conversation problem. That's a, that's a context problem. Um, so, it, but it becomes a bigger issue if someone is aggregating all of this data about you. Uh, in fact, I think I remember reading recently there was a, a Melania Trump liked a post that in some sense attacked her husband, but the assumption was that she didn't like the post, whether she did it on purpose or not. It may have been a, hey, I saw this, or I wanted to bookmark it, but it wasn't necessarily the fact that she was liking the fact that somebody was attacking her husband. Um, Again, that's poor context. But the so it becomes a, an issue of context. But then, what happens if one's doing something like this? Or let's say I, you know, if I'm using Twitter the way I do, and somebody's posting a bunch of articles about white supremacy that aren't necessarily things I typically would really like, but I'm using it as a bookmark functionality. You know, is that sending a signal to some? corporation or advertiser or you know let's say i live in a a totalitarian state where my freedom of speech isn't as valued as it is currently in the united states is my liking that thing going to now put me on a a no-fly list or a you know arrest on site list because you know, the content that I'm liking is verboten, you know, so there are certainly extreme cases that one would worry about those types of privacy issues. And I think within an indie web context, it's all more about functionality and features that are person to person features rather than, you know, we're, most of us aren't using our personal websites this, the way the masses are using things like Twitter, which tends to be a, a, you know, there's a lot of issues with problems with the commons. And here I wish we had somebody like, you know, Kevin Marks to chime in with you know decades of experience and actually looking at and studying these things but well we may get a chance at some point 
but not necessarily it, right it, now. It's just he's it, probably to me, asleep. To me, it's the you know the the non the non people uses of social media, uh, and I. One of the things I like about the indie web is most most of us are thinking very long and hard about some of these small issues so that when using one's personal website to interact on, on the on the web, we're not running into some of the bigger, scarier problems that platforms like Facebook and Twitter and you know YouTube have caused or created along the way um so it's you know i remember a few weeks ago there was a conversation in the chat room about what what should we do for the concept of a delete web mention so if somebody could web mention me and then later on decide i don't want that publicly available anymore and they can send a web mention to me that essentially says okay go ahead and delete this but the question within a broader WordPress functionality is that, you know, you and Matthias and a few others who are building and maintaining these things are not just doing it for yourselves, but when you make small changes, you're affecting right now hundreds to potentially thousands of people who are out there using these things. Are you sure it's hundreds? I think on some of them, there are hundreds of people who are out there. Uh, 700 plus active installations of the WebMention plugin. So, you know, the direction you go then becomes the direction that thousands thereafter are, to some extent, stuck with. uh, Well, that's why depending on their tech technical use. But I think at the same time, you guys are generally doing a relatively good job of seeing and hearing and listening how people are using the products you're making. And you're doing it in such a way that's making it either harder, harder to or not easy to weaponize them in some sense. Um, but I think when I when that question of delete web mentions came up, I phrased a preference of delete it. Yes. In the sense that no longer display it on my website or change it from being an actively accepted comment to being a, a pending one. That way I can then go in and delete or change the data to anonymize the comment and then re-accept it so that it shows up and the the flow of the conversation is there. It just isn't apparent who made that uh, who made that comment. Well, um, we're sort of slowly moving in that direction. Um, so, in the last um, twenty four hours or so, we've changed the text of the note on people's sites where it used to say "respond on the site." and link to the post and now it says um based on the recommendation of one chris aldrich it now reads to respond on your own site enter the url of your response which should contain a link to this post permalink url 
Your response will then appear, possibly after moderation on this page. Want to update or remove your response, update or delete your post, and re-enter your post's URL again. So it now expressly says that you can actually just delete it by deleting where it came from. Mm -hmm. And then sending another note by web mention. Although even this brings up the question too, and I think one or two people have posed it, but I haven't seen anybody respond to the broader context of it. But there are organizations like archive.org that are archiving content and saving it. And what happens to large organizations like that that are archiving large chunks of, you know, certainly public data on the internet in relation to how things like GDPR work or, you know, other related commentary. Are they going to be held to that same legal standard or did, you know, do they pick up and move and change countries so that they are no longer subject to those laws because even things like robots.txt are not necessarily written in stone and there are some crawlers that still will crawl your site and index data that you tell them i'd rather you not index but again that's not respecting other people which we're assuming for the sake of argument that indie web community members are because I even in my case, I when I've got something running in the background that when I post a new piece of content, it pings the archive.org site to essentially say archive this. And then when I update pieces at future dates, it sends a little update ping to archive.org and says Please re-index this. So even in the case that somebody publicly replies, you know, one day and then months later says, no, I prefer that not be there, you know, hide it, please. Even though I may hide it on my site, the copy that exists on archive.org may not necessarily. Yeah, well, that goes back to you can't control that. And then I, you know, and I don't have direct control over the data. Although at the same time, too, I kind of follow the general tenant that, you know, I wish more people would follow as if, you know, you don't want a thing to exist on the web. Don't ever put it out there in the first place. Um, And of course, if that were really the case, it would, you know, half of the web wouldn't exist. Or even in the case of things like, you know, over the last year and a half, concepts like deep fakes suddenly can take simple things you put out on the web and heavily weaponize them against you to, you know, as a, you know, a non-pornographic example, I think it was, um, was it Peel a few weeks ago posted a video of Barack Obama that he had stitched together and it completely looked like Barack Obama having a normal conversation, but he was 
saying things that it was obvious, patently obvious that Barack Obama had never said, but it was both video and audio, and it was a reasonably well convincing setup that made it look like, oh yeah, he sat down and recorded this, and isn't this lovely? And it goes to the world is getting a lot more confusing. You know, I, I you know, I can even remember uh, conversations. I wish I had bookmarked it ages ago, but uh, you know, folks like Leo Laporte, who's been podcasting for fifteen plus years now and has hundreds and thousands of hours of audio out on the web as well as video. You know, if you were able to go and uh, you know, if he's got it all available on his website, so a company could easily go in and scrape all that data out and do all kinds of terrible, horrible things with the audio files of his voice and video files of him, you know, chatting. And that with the hundreds of thousands of hours of him doing that, it would be very easy to, you know, reinterpret him. Uh, in a sense. In fact, I think one of his early jobs, uh, he played a character called Dev Null. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard you know, about that. T- almost 20 years ago where he you know, was a an animated character. Wasn't that and the they, one where he explained things to Soledad O'Brien? Yes. Okay. You know, so, but they, you know, they put him in a little bodysuit and shot him on a green screen and then reanimated him. You know, so... 20 years ago, it was easy to take a person and animate them into a reasonably believable character. Well, in the next five or 10 years, it's going to be easy enough to take a, a massive data file of you sitting and talking, as well as the audio files, and then one can easily make you do or say anything they wanted to make you do or say. Which is, you know, a very scary thing. So where do we draw the line and how do we draw the line as a society to mitigate against those things that we all know are coming? I wish I knew. And, you know, so to some extent, I think GDPR is a a useful thing, but I also, you know, there are cases where it can be misused that you can take examples of horrible malfeasance, you know, in two or three decades when more and more things are online, one can easily go back and scrub history and suddenly make somebody like Adolf Hitler look like a a choir boy in some sense, or at least in terms of a digital footprint. And you know, what does that do to the world we then live in if, you know, more and more people believe? I think that, that's a sobering thought to pause on. You know, things, I mean, there's already enough people out there who believe that the Holocaust is a hoax. And it's, you know, to me, that is painfully sad. But that's an event that also never occurred in an online era. You don't think that you don't think that something that horrible could happen in an online era? 
Oh no, I, I totally believe it could happen in an online era. In fact, I have what scares me. I've recently I've recently been kind of power listening my way through uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. Oh, uh, the third season's coming. And the yeah, they're just about to start posting episodes. I'm almost caught up to start into it, but in the second season, he's got an episode where he talks about. Winston Churchill's best friend, Lord Cherwell, who was, you know, a very solid, good best friend and always took Winston's side on things. And as a result of actions he took and responses that Churchill gave, between the two of them, they more or less historically created a a massive famine in India during World War Two. I was listening it, to that in I think July or so. And, and as a you know, and as a result, three million people died in a horrible famine because they not only caused certain things to happen, but actively participated against the warnings of others to let it happen. Um, and when one thinks about that in the context of World War II, when Churchill is fighting against not only fascism, but the you know extermination of an entire group of people that ended up being in the, what, five or five and a half, six million uh, dead when it was all tallied, I think, is the general historical. Well, on, on the Jewish side, yes, six million. When you add in uh, persecution of, uh, let's see, gypsies, Greeks, homosexuals, the number increases. Yeah. So, so you've got that. And then on the other side, there's this horrible story that I think the vast majority of people don't know about of three million people dying of famine in India. Uh, when there was food. You know, when there was food that was easily had and dealt with and gotten and it was their political belief uh, and that was the thing too is they you know had political beliefs and they didn't act actively go out of their way to kill these people the way hitler systematically did it but i it makes one wonder isn't apathy just know, as bad you know what's is there a you know what, what moral distinction if any is there to be made and it's. I just worry we've gotten a little too political. Well, although admittedly, if World War Two is still a political issue, I'm, yeah, I'm surprised. But, well, you know, if we talked about the Polish, we would have violated Polish law. So. <laughs> well, we're. So it's still. Um, to be honest, I'm guessing the issue is still touchy. So. Yeah. Well, you know, we're still living historical decisions that were made. Two, three, four hundred years ago, um, I think a huge amount of world geopolitics was decided at the end of World War One when they sat down and redrew maps and decided that some people who hated each other should be in the same country. You know, I, to a great extent, and you know, at at that, I think there's a lot of Americans who have no idea that Woodrow Wilson was a, you know, a a violent racist. 
Wasn't that a different episode of that same show? I th- yeah, I think he's touched on that too as well, uh, or Gladwell did. Yeah, I remember. Um, I know I listened to all those episodes when they came out. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's, you know, small decisions we make today may have big drastic rippling effects later on. So for now, just to sort of bring it back around. But I, you know, I think the positive side is, you know, Sebastian, I think Sebastian, even if you take away the GDPR piece of what he's directly responding to, I think a lot of his message really is more about the, how can we design things purposefully to, you know, create proper contexts and, you know, have well-represented data so that, you know, people either aren't taken out of context or aren't, you know, cheated or lied to or at least treated respectfully, you know. So I, you know, I think I, I sit in the same boat that you do that I would very rapidly and easily take down data if someone said I would prefer that not be the case. Now, if, you know, if I'm Woodward or Bernstein and Nixon were still alive and said, hey, don't, (laughs) can you remove that Washington Post article? That's a conversation on a whole nother level. Well, for now, what I'm going to do, and I stopped everything else I was doing, is I'm going to put in a few tools. So there are commit after commit that's coming in to try to add more around being able to control that. And this is from the site owner perspective. So if you don't want to capture that information, you can turn it off. Yeah. Or even I, you know, I don't know if anybody's looked at taking Sebastian's pixelated, I'm sure he's got a code snippet somewhere that he uses to pixelate avatars. Um, But even that could be an interesting little side tool. Yeah, but uh, we don't even store avatars on the WordPress side yet. We're linking yeah. to them dynamically, which means yeah. the easiest way for you to prevent uh, a uh, showing the avatar is to just stop hosting it. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a lot to think about. So. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking about it a lot. That's why I suggested, since web mention was one of the topics, that we do web mention and privacy to talk about this issue. Well, and I would hope and invite folks who are listening who are interested in the idea or thoughts, the pitfalls uh, or design pieces that they, you know, jump up and make themselves heard by writing about it or mentioning it either in the GitHub repositories or the IndieWeb chat or even writing something either on Twitter, Facebook, or their own site. Um, because uh, to me the the more interesting piece of this is the there's been a really big broad community conversation around this, good, bad, and indifferent in some cases. Um, and I'll be glad it, when the twenty fifth passes and <laughs> it isn't like a, it, right now it feels like everybody sees this looming deadline and feels like they're rushing to solve this problem by the twenty fifth. Yeah. Oh, After and it's a, ignoring it's a, it for like the two years that people have been talking about it coming. Oh, not even just two years. I, you know, I think this has been coming for 
two decades, if not more. I'm talking about the specific regulation yeah. we have now. I'm not talking about the fact that privacy has been a discussion for years. Yeah. It just feels like now, it, that's the, the thing that bothers me. It feels like there's pressure to solve a problem by tomorrow. Yeah. I'm going to do my part. So every other day I'm putting, I'm adding a new feature. Excellent. Well, thanks for doing that. Yeah, but all these features I'm adding, I have no intention of using, which is the opposite of my normal. Except for Bridgie Publish. No, I'm, I'm, I put that on hold. Well, no, I mean, you've created that and then promptly didn't use it. Yes, but I created it to use it. The fact that oh, okay. I didn't use it was very disappointing to me. Yeah, but okay. I created it to use it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a, a a very one of the more interesting and important indie web principles is building things yourself to use for yourself. Because if you're not going to use it, who will? Well, in this um, case, I'm adding settings for the pure purpose of turning off all the things I'm using for myself. Yeah. Well, um, so but, that I but, won't feel bad about using them while other people are upset about them. Yeah. Well, at least you're innate. You're empowering others to be able to do what they might be like to be able to do. So, and I sincerely hope that they don't check all the boxes that turn off all the good features. <laughs> well, yes, stop showing avatar photos. Okay, there's a checkbox. Yeah. Well, one, that, but I'm never going to uncheck it. One could also go the to the other extreme and uninstall the web mentions plugin altogether. If, if that's the case, you know, you can live in ignorant bliss if you really wanted to. Although Probably. I find a, I find a lot more value in having it than in not having it. So. Me too, but that this is my compromise. So my compromise is if you don't want it, but you want some of it, you can have as much of it or as little as, as you want. But my intention is to have all of it. <laughs> and to quote a a famous philosopher, I want the world. I want the whole world. <laughs> I want it now. That's one. <laughs> we'll post in the show notes where that came from. Uh, from a, uninitiated. Uh, from, a, um, from a movie that was filmed in Germany, if I remember correctly. Yes, I believe it was. Uh, if I remember correctly. One of my favorites. I actually used to screen that movie twice a year in a movie theater and give away bags full of candy. And we we almost performed it the way some theaters would do Rocky Horror Picture Show. That would have been interesting to watch. Oh, it was, was loads of fun. Well, but I can tell you, throwing handfuls of nerds across the uh, the path of the light projected from the projector to the screen to send, you know, to send someone by television is a real pain in the neck to clean up. No everlasting gobscopper. No, no, no. The, I, we quit giving those away after the third screening because when somebody throws one of those across the theater and it hits you in the head, it really hurts. I believe that. So, it never loses right. its flavor. 
Well, it, it is getting not only late on the East Coast, but late even on the West Coast. Yes, it's 1 a.m. as we're having this conversation, so I think it's a good time to sort of pause until the next time we continue this. Sounds, sounds good. Thanks, David. Okay, it's been a pleasure, and if you want to hear more of this podcast, just keep listening. That seems like the easiest way to do it. Yep. And that's the way it is.